Will you remain standing with me and let's confess our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Before I go further, I I want to uh, say thank you to those who were here yesterday for the work party, uh, worked on the the trails out in the woods. I haven't, wasn't able to be here because I tweaked my back and uh, my chiropractor said, "Uh uh-uh, don't do that. Um, But I I was with you in spirit and I'm, I'm so thankful. I heard that it just looks great out there. And so thank you to those who worked hard. Also want to add to what Pastor Evan said about kids camp. Um, he said if you're in four years through sixth grade, you can t- participate. But actually, if you're beyond sixth grade, you can also participate. And uh, we are in uh, great need of volunteers for that week. And what a fun week that is. I want you to know that all the pastors are going to be on deck that week. All of us, uh, everyone on the staff is going to be present and, and engaged. And uh, I invite you to do that too. It's just going to be a, a great week of uh, investing in the lives of some kids and telling them about Jesus. And so um, I hope that you'll consider that. Today we've come uh, in this series that we've been in to the line in the Apostles' Creed that reads, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. And I want you to know that hands down I have received more uh, questions uh, about this particular line in the creed than any other, more emails, more texts, um, some of you, each time we've recited the creed together during this series, have kind of choked on this line. And um, just this past week, I received an email that read, uh, are we Catholic or, or what gives? So the answer is yes, we are Catholic, just not the Roman variety. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a few minutes. Um, I'm taking a somewhat simple approach to this message, although at the end you may have a different opinion. Uh, for, but for a couple of reasons. First, I fire-hosed you last week. I think it makes sense to lighten it up a little bit this week. And second, I think that this matter of the church may be a little more familiar territory for some, if not most of you. And I, I hope that you'll find this message to be helpful to you in understanding something of the basics of the biblical doctrine of the church. This is a doctrinal message. It's more of a teaching than a sermon. Uh, but let's begin with this statement as our starting point. And I'm just taking this this statement in its parts. So let's begin with, I believe in the church. Simply that. Uh, we'll address the adjectives holy and Catholic in just a few minutes, but let's just begin with this, I believe in the church. And I'd like for us to think about that simple statement together for a moment. Uh, and I think we need to begin um, by answering the question, what is the church exactly? What are we talking about when we talk about the church? There are several significant passages in New Testament Scripture that we could consult 
Uh, in order to answer that question, what is the church? Uh, for our purposes today, I'd like to take you to just a few what I think are really foundational passages. And the first is in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, where we read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Uh, And by the way, that's just a, a really bizarre answer to begin with. Uh, maybe you'll talk about that in your life groups this week. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the word translated church here in verse 18 is the Greek word ekklesia. It's actually a compound word. It's composed of two words. The first one is ek, which which means out from. It's a word that implies movement, not only out from, but also out to. Um, The second word is kaleo which means to call. Uh, Together they give the sense of a people called out uh, from among others and called out to a specific purpose. In everyday use in the first century, ecclesia could describe any assembly of people uh, that were called out and called together. It was used often, for example, of political assemblies. But as Jesus applied it, and as it's applied in the New Testament to the Christian community, ecclesia describes all whom God calls out if uh, calls out of the world into a redemptive relationship with Christ and into fellowship with those who believe in him. That language of being called out of the world is especially evident. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, there in language borrowed from the Old Testament, the Apostle Peter wrote to the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, there's more there than I have time to unpack this morning, but would you notice God's sovereign choosing and God's sovereign calling? He has called us out of darkness, out of the darkness of sin, and into his light. It's a calling from and a calling to. We're called to relationship with God, to be his own possession. We're called to the task of proclaiming his excellencies, his greatness, his grace, his gospel to the nations. Going back now to Matthew 16, and I'm not going to read that again, but it's on your screen. I want you to see three powerful truths in this passage. First of all, that Jesus promised to build his church. That's significant. He began that work at the cross. He's still about that work by his spirit today. And notice that we're not the builders. He is. But we get that confused sometimes. Uh, We want to call the shots. We want to give shape to a church that meets our preferences. But he's the builder. 
and he uses us by his spirit in that process, but he is the one who does the calling. He's the one who does the saving. He's the one who does the building. Secondly, pay attention to the foundation upon which he promised to build his church. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Well, what rock did he have in mind? That rock is the belief. Notice the belief first, and then the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Now, those who were baptized in the first service and Rebecca, who's being baptized here in the second service, uh, are doing just that. They're declaring their faith in Jesus Christ. Third, please don't miss the fact that the personal belief that enables anyone to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is not arrived at by human perception, human intuition, but rather it's revealed exclusively by God according to his will and purpose. We don't get there by ourselves. We don't get there by our own intellect. We don't get there by our own imagination. Uh, If we come to faith in Christ, it's because God, by his Spirit, has called us. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So what is the church? Maybe we can attempt a simple definition at this point. Let me share this with you. Try it on for size. The church is the called-out community of those who believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and who are sent back into the world to proclaim the gospel. What do you think? You think that works a little bit? Okay. Here's the second question we should ask, and it's simply this. What does it mean to believe in the church, when we say, I, I believe in the church, we, we kind of know what we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus or I believe in God. What do we mean when we say, I believe in the church? Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And this is the second, I think, really significant passage. We're going to discover that to believe in the church means at least three things. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is writing here to a Gentile church. It's the church in Ephesus. Um, Not very many Jews in Ephesus in those days. So a predominantly Gentile church. And here in these verses, his teaching takes the form of a spiritual biography. Whose biography? Theirs. And by extension, ours. In verses 11 and 12, he wants them to remember their old condition apart from Christ. In verses 13 through 18, he calls them to recognize their new condition in Christ. And in verses 19 to 22, he invites them to regard their new connection because of Christ or through Christ. So let's begin with verses 11 and 12, where he draws their attention to their own past. To believe in the church, first of all, is to remember your old condition apart from Christ. Verses 11 and 12 I'm not going to read it again, but there it is again on your screen. Specifically, Paul reminds the Ephesian believers here that from the perspective of God's covenant with Israel, the covenant that God made with Abraham, they, the Ephesians, the Gentiles, uh, were Gentiles in the flesh, physically. Circumcision was the mark that uh, God gave to Abraham, to his descendants, forever as the mark of their participation in the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Uh, These Ephesian Gentiles were uncircumcised. Their Jewish counterparts didn't mind calling that fact to their attention and uh, and used it as a basis for ridicule and discrimination. But Paul also inserts the thought here that circumcision isn't something God does. He says instead that it's something done by human hands. Because of their status as Gentiles, as non- Jews, Paul says four things were true of them. First, they were separated from Christ. No relationship with Messiah Jesus. They were alienated, secondly, from their, from citizenship in Israel. Third, they were strangers or foreigners to the covenants that God made with Israel. And fourth, as a result of all of that, they were without hope and without God in the world. When you stop to think about it, to be without God, to be separated from Christ, to be aliens and strangers in relationship to the people of God is to be essentially, functionally, virtually, really nowhere. It is to be lost. It is to be hopeless on a cosmic, eternal level. Think about that. You're without God. You're without hope on a green dying planet somewhere in a far-flung galaxy. No hope, no future. It is, in fact, the very epitome of being lost in space. Notice that Paul's writing here in distinctly relational terms. There is a people of God. And the Ephesians, as Gentiles, were not part of it, had no claim in it, experienced no relationship with it, except as strangers and aliens. But Paul begins verse 13 with the two-word phrase, but now. 
But now, having reminded them of their separation from Christ, their alienation from the people of God, their hopeless condition apart from God, he tells them, secondly, that to believe in the church includes recognizing their new condition in Christ. By the blood of Christ, they who were far off have been brought near. And again, don't miss the relational terms or the relational tones. To whom have they been brought near? Well, they've been brought near to Israel, to the people of God. How? By the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Redeemed, reconciled to God through faith in Christ, we, whether we are Jew or Gentile, Find peace with God and with each other. He himself, Paul says, is our peace. Where there was racial and religious enmity, where there was hostility, Paul uses that word hostility twice here, there is now peace. And I want to just uh, pause right here and simply suggest to you that the key to solving the racial divide in our nation, which has again reached a fever pitch, uh, is not going to be found in financial reparations, nor will it be found in the spread of critical race theory, which is already proving to accelerate racial hostility rather than to suppress it, nor in any amount of prolonged violence. The answer to racial reconciliation is Jesus Christ. I recently saw a BLM poster that read, There Can Be No Peace, without justice. And as I thought about it, I thought it's a true statement. What I also realized as I read it is that there is no need for any of us to take justice into our own hands because justice has already been done. It was accomplished at the cross. Jesus Christ bore in his own body on the cross the sin of every single person who has ever been born, regardless of their skin color, their language, their tribe, their nation. In the ultimate act of justice, God just unleashed his wrath, the full measure of his wrath on Jesus Christ. And he died there in our place as our substitute. And because justice has been done, there can now be forgiveness. Because justice has been done, there can be reconciliation. Because justice has been done, we can know peace with God and with each other. Because the Spirit takes up residence in our lives, we possess the capacity in turn to manifest the grace and the forgiveness of Christ to each other, even across racial divides. See, God's purpose through the cross was to make peace by creating in Christ from among both Jews and Gentiles one new humanity. And that new humanity, that new race, is the church. 
At verse 17, Paul says that Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. He preached the same message, the gospel of peace. And as we believe in Jesus, we are both reconciled to God. We receive the Spirit. We receive direct access to the Father in that one Spirit. Third, Paul wants them to know that to believe in the church is to regard their new connection in Christ. Just a few observations first. No longer strangers and aliens. They have a new citizenship. They are fellow citizens with the saints. Who are the saints? Uh, They are not an NFL team from Louisiana. Uh, They're not people in robes with golden halos around their heads. Uh, Nor are they exclusively people who have lived especially noteworthy Christian lives. Neither are they the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They are not a church, they're a cult. They believe in a different Jesus Christ, not the Christ of the Bible. And so, biblically speaking, they can make no claim to be saints. The word translated saints is hagioi, and it literally means holy ones. The saints are all those who have been made holy by the blood of Christ, the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, having transferred their trust, their personal faith to Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul says that they're members of the household or family of God, and third, that they are being joined together to become a holy temple, a dwelling place for God. So maybe we can venture another definition at this point. The church is the citizenry of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We are members of the household of God. We are the building materials for the living temple of God. And I could go on, but never forget this, that Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus birthed the church. Jesus lives for the church. Jesus lives by his spirit in the church. Jesus is even now interceding and advocating for the church with the heavenly father. Jesus is preparing a place for the church. He's preparing the church to be his bride. And Jesus is coming to take the church home to the place he has prepared for her. Jesus is all about the church. Matthew Henry once wrote that when we take God for our God, we take his people for our people. And I would add warts and all. Right? Someone once said, you know, to to dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, that's another story. But when we take God for our God, we take his people for our people. I believe in the church. Second statement, I believe in the Holy Church. I believe in the Holy Church. As we saw last week when we surveyed the biblical teaching on the person and work of God, the Holy Spirit, there are two aspects of this matter of holiness. Neither the believer individually nor the church collectively is holy all by themselves. We are holy 
because God by His Spirit makes us holy. More specifically, the Bible teaches first that if you are in Christ, then you have been, past tense, made holy. That is, God has set you apart as his very own, and he has given you an identifying mark as his child. You might call it a birthmark. And the word that the New Testament uses for that identifying mark is a seal. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 tells us that the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is the seal that identifies you as belonging to God. That is, as the heavenlies look on, whether angels or demons, as they look on, as they see you, they see the Holy Spirit in you, and you are identified cosmically as a child of God. He will never leave you or be taken from you, and you will never be taken from him. You've been adopted as a child of God, and so your eternal inheritance is in heaven is guaranteed. That second aspect of holiness that we saw last week is that the Spirit is at work, present tense, in your life to make you holy to make you more and more like Jesus. And this is a lifelong process, and the Holy Spirit does that work so that your character is progressively conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. He takes up residence in your life, and he changes you from the inside out. There's also a third aspect of holiness to which the church is called, and that's moral holiness. Go with me to Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do. And now, by Gentiles, Paul means all who do not know Christ. For they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. The Bible calls us to make a priority of living a holy life. And in that pursuit, we have help from the Lord Jesus, certainly. We have help from the Spirit. We have help from God's Word. And in the church, we have help from each other. Notice Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I want you to know that the word caught there is is not detected, found out, although it may include that. The word caught there means to be trapped in the sin itself. And so we might think of a uh, a sinful addiction. We might think of a, a just a chronic pattern of sin, a rut of sin that we can never seem to get out of. And Paul says that there's a there's a role for the church and that and that we come alongside not in a spirit of 
hostility or anger or judgmentalism, but gentleness, he says. Because we know that we, we have our own stuff. Each of us does. But he says, you who are spiritual, you who are more mature, come alongside that person. It's interesting to me that, that the word, the phrase, bear one another's burdens, is found in this context. We, we, we apply that to all kinds of other things that are, that are less fraught with peril, right? But what I think he's describing is coming alongside each other and being with each other in the struggle against sin in our lives and encouraging each other, not being dishonest about those things, but just acknowledging them, saying, I'm, I'm, I struggle with this. And I thought by now in my life I'd, I'd be past all of that, and yet the same stuff I've struggled with almost my entire Christian life, I'm still struggling with. So we come alongside each other. We bear one another's burdens. We love each other even in the struggle, and we help each other through the struggle. And then in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, kind of on the flip side, proactive side of that, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So on the one hand, we're sitting with each other in in the struggle against sin. We're standing shoulder to shoulder with each other in the struggle against sin. And on the other, we're just cheering each other on to be and to do all that God has called us to be and to do. But I hope that you understand, even as I'm saying that, what what kind of radical commitment to each other that is implied on, on both sides of that. Next, there's a statement, I believe in the Catholic Church. You've been waiting for this, haven't you? When, when in the words of the Apostles' Creed, Protestants declare that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, it's the little C Catholic Church, not the big C Roman Catholic Church. Catholic is an adjective, not a noun. Uh, it der- derives from the Greek word katholikos, and it conveys the meaning of wholeness or entirety or universality. The word appears uh, only once that I know of in the New Testament, and that's at Acts chapter 4, verse 18, where it says that the high priest Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which was the, the Jewish ruling council, commanded the apostles Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And that two-word phrase, at all, is a translation uh, from another form of this word, catholicos. And the sense is that they were commanding them never, at any time, in any place, in any language, in any way, shape, or form, to speak or teach ever again in the name of Jesus. Uh, In other words, they were to be universally quiet. Brings to mind something we would yell at the opposing teams at sporting events when I was in high school. No, no, never, never, uh, uh-uh-uh. Now, that's what they're saying. No, no, never, never, uh-uh-uh, never, ever, in any way, shape, or form, in any place, in any time, in any language, teach in the name of Jesus. The Jewish leaders wanted to place a universal or comprehensive muzzle on the apostles, which, of course, they ignored out of obedience to God. Very early on, this word katholikos came to carry the more permanent meaning 
of just universal, universal, which can be found in most modern dictionaries. So when we apply that to the church, uh, the word Catholic describes the, the universal church, the international church, that is the true church as it exists in every part of the world, in every ethnic setting, every language, every tribe, every nation, including all those who have gone before us. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 describes by name several Old Testament men and women and and the lives of conviction and courage that they lived by faith. And at the close, he gives a very general description of many more who were unnamed but who similarly lived by faith. And then at verse 1 of chapter 12, he begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And then at verse 2, he said, Let us press on. Many have speculated as to whether the saints in heaven are looking on at the church here on earth and just cheering us on. And similarly living lives of courageous faith. Maybe. Whatever it means, there is the sense of a solidarity and a fellowship with those who have gone before us. We sang it earlier regarding the church. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. In John's vision recorded in Revelation 5, 8 to 10, he saw heavenly creatures surrounding the throne of Jesus, singing a new song of worship in which they declare in verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll, speaking to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. There it is. In heaven, we're going to learn what Catholicism really means. There aren't any Baptists in heaven. No Presbyterians or Lutherans or Methodists. We're just Christians. Just Christians. Because we don't equate Catholic with Roman Catholic, some prefer to say Holy Christian Church when they recite the Creed. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But neither is there any reason to avoid the word Catholic. And we need not be embarrassed by it. Jesus prayed that the church would be one, even as you and I, Father, are one, so that the world might believe that you sent me. In the oneness of the church, there's a powerful witness to the reality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Finally, the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the communion of saints. The communion of saints. This word communion also comes from the Greek word koinonia, which is translated variously partnership or participation, sharing, communion, fellowship. When we speak about the communion of saints, we're not talking about the the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or, or whatever your tradition calls it. We're talking about the quality and the content of the relationships that exist between believers in Jesus, the ways that we relate to each other, the reasons that we do. 
In Acts 2, we read that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people believed the message of the gospel as Peter preached it. They were baptized. They were added to the church. And in Acts 2, 42 and following, we read that they immediately, that group of new believers and those who had already believed before them, they together devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, there's that word koinonia, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. But the larger context is an illumination, a description of the communion of saints, of of the fellowship that ought to be enjoyed in the church. They shared everything they had so that as a result of their generosity, we read in Acts chapter 4 that no one, absolutely no one in the Christian community was in need. Think of that. They chose to be together seemingly all of the time, whether it was in their homes or in the temple courts. It was out of that commitment to a radical quality of fellowship uh, that those who were looking on desired, uh, developed a desire to know more about Jesus. And the Lord added to their number daily, it says, those who were believing in him and being saved. And then as the church grew and expanded, it it began to take on a multi-ethnic complexion. Gentiles were being saved uh, from other regions, from neighboring countries. In Acts 13, in fact, we read personal names that indicate a multicultural church in Antioch with multi-ethnic leaders. There's a lot being made today about the pursuit of diversity as a goal for the church. Uh, we need to understand that there is no command in Scripture to pursue diversity as a primary goal. There is, however, a command that we preach the gospel to all the nations, to every people group, to every person, every people group on the globe. And in that pursuit of that goal and in recognition of the truth that the gospel is for all of humanity, diversity is to be joyfully embraced. So so if we look around on a Sunday morning and we see people whose skin is lighter or darker than ours, whose eyes look a little different, whose skin is a different a different tone, if if they speak with a little bit of a different accent, we ought to give thanks and rejoice in that because God is building together the church. The overwhelming command in Scripture is not to pursue diversity, but rather is to pursue unity among all believers anywhere and everywhere they are found. And that's why the New Testament is replete with commands that include the phrase, one another. Someone counted up to 59 of them in the New Testament. I don't know if that number is accurate or not, but I know that there are at least 15 or 16 of those commands that that simply say, love one another. Love one another. Four times we're commanded to encourage each other. And here are just a few of the others. Be at peace with each other. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept 
one another then just as Christ accepted you. Bear with each other, have equal concern for each other, serve one another in love, carry each other's burdens, be patient, bearing with one another in love, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgive each other, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, build each other up, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, and on and on it goes." And observing how many one another's there actually are, Andy Stanley concluded that the, the primary activity of the church seems to have been one anothering one another. And, and that's not a bad summary. The apostles called the, the church to a primary focus on serving one another in ways that were not only spiritual, but material, physical, personal, Practical, And in his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul wrote, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In our serving, we're called to give a priority to other believers. Well, what do you think? Do we really believe in the church? Do we? It's an important question. Do we really? In our time, we've witnessed some new phenomena in relationship to people's attitudes toward the church. Um, there is what has been labeled consumer Christianity, in which the church is regarded not as a family, not as a household, not as a community of mutual love, service, and edification, but rather as a provider of spiritual experiences, a purveyor of services, programs. People evaluate a local church based on what the church has to offer them and their children rather than what they have to offer. There's also the related theme of what has been called migrant Christianity. Earlier it was called church hopping, in which people just migrate from one local church to another and back again within a geographical area. Here in the new millennium, we're, we're discovering, that, discovering that people are increasingly casual about church attendance, church involvement. That people are leaving the church uh, in large numbers, leaving entirely, and they're not coming back. You know, for most of my life, there have been voices in our society predicting the demise of our church. Not our church, but the church but I don't buy it, neither should you. Why? Well, I've read the end of the story. And at the end of the age, the church wins because Jesus wins. Church is still standing. Church is the bride of Christ, the radiant bride of Christ. But here's something I've observed about what is kind of our tribe, evangelicals in America today. We generally have a well-developed um, understanding of personal faith. We have a well-developed understanding of individual salvation. We talk about having a personal relationship with Christ. We have a fairly strong sense of the imperative of social compassion, but unfortunately, that's combined with a very weak understanding of and commitment to the life and mission of the church. 
So if we're to say with integrity, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, what will it mean for us, each of us individually? Allow me to suggest four implied commitments and then I'm done. First, it will mean that I commit myself to Jesus Christ. You say, well, I've already done that. But if I have a very casual relationship with the local church and see my attendance, my service, my participation in the church as a low priority, then I need to re-examine my claim to be a follower of Jesus because he's all about the church. Christ died for the church. He lives for the church. He's coming for the church. Maybe I need to revisit who Jesus is and what he's all about and renew my commitment to him and to the priorities of his kingdom. Second, it will mean, I think, that I commit myself to holiness. To holiness. I can't make myself holy, no matter how hard I try. Only God can do that. But I can pursue my own spiritual growth. I can commit myself to deeper obedience to the will of God as he has revealed it in his word. I can turn away from known sin in my life. I can choose to live a more authentic life of discipleship and I can look to others within my local church to join me and to help me make and keep that commitment. Third, I think it'll mean that I commit myself to oneness with all authentic believers in Jesus. So I think it's interesting, and I'm just making this qualifying statement that if you can't commit to oneness with Christ followers in your local church, then you won't even know how to pursue oneness with Christ followers beyond your local church. All of those relationships will be superficial. But the idea here is that you commit yourself to fellowship with Christians who are part of other denominations other races, other ethnicities, other cultures, other languages, without holding back. And part of that involves mission. It involves prayer for kingdom advancement around the world and locking arms with those who are serving around the world. And then fourth, it will mean that I commit myself to authentic fellowship within my local church. Here at LifePoint, we ask everyone to just make four commitments that make sense to us as being biblical, as being essential to the life of Christian discipleship. They are, first of all, a commitment to regular attendance and participation. It's, it's a good thing, we think, that you're here, that you're here regularly, that you're here often. Secondly, a commitment to join a small group for relational connection, for spiritual growth, for shared mission. If you're not committing to a place of deeper relationship within the church, you won't be growing. You won't love the church because it's in those intimate, more intimate relationships that you come to genuinely love and serve one another. Third, a commitment to actively serve in a specific definable place of ministry, whether that's in typical programs of the church, children, youth, adults, etc., etc., or maybe it's in different kinds of ministries. Maybe something God has would call you to do that we haven't even thought of yet. And fourth, a commitment to contribute time, money, and other personal resources to advancing the overall ministry and mission of LifePoint Church. And we think all of the all four of those are biblical commitments.
make sense to the life of discipleship. Well, what about you? Do you believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints? How's that belief taking practical shape in your personal lifestyle? You think about that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wonderful gift of the church. Because with all of its scars, with all of its warts, all of its blemishes, you are perfecting the church to be your holy bride. And we get to be a part of that. Lord, help us not only to believe in the church, but to love the church, to serve the church, to pray for the church, to advance the mission of the church in our time as you give us opportunity and strength. May we, Lord, here at LifePoint, be one little expression of the overall thing that, that you want to accomplish in all of the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.